The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 3. There's just one more thing that I wanted to talk about because I like to keep you uh, aligned with God's divine calendar. Okay, so we do our life according to the Gregorian calendar, um, but the Hebraic calendar, which goes according to the moon, it's a little bit different, but it more or less aligns with, with our months. And so we are entering a brand new month on the Jewish calendar. We're entering the month of Tammuz. And you'll often find that God does, does things cyclically. He does things in patterns. And oftentimes, he'll do the same thing over and over again in a particular month. So what is the month of Tammuz all about? Well, listen, it's the month of the open door. Doesn't that sound great? Open doors in your life, open doors for our ministry, open doors in your heart, in your relationships, in your business opportunities, in terms of revelation, what we're praying for, what we're looking for in this season is, God, where are you opening divine doors? Because when God opens a door, no man can shut it, and that's good news. It's also the month of vision, divine revelation. And eyes are everywhere in this month. And so we're asking for the Lord to give us eyes to see that which can't be seen in the physical realm. We want God's heart. We want God's eyes. We want to see the world the way he sees it. And so we're going to pray now and ask the Lord to give us his eyes as we look at his word. Holy Spirit, you're here. And we welcome you. As our teacher, we invite you into this space to take these words and lift them off the page and plant them into our hearts so that they can produce within us supernatural change that impacts and affects not only us, but everyone that we come in contact with. Lord, we want to see and experience transformation here tonight. And we know that that's a work not of the flesh, not of the will of man, but that is a work of your Holy Spirit in our life. And so we are open to that. We invite you to have your way this evening. As we open your word, would you open our hearts and do surgery? Would you cut away all the parts of us that don't look like you? And so that all that remains is more of Jesus. And we pray and ask all of these things together. In your name, Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. And so quickly, uh, by way of introduction tonight, we're going to be reexamining and jumping back into the life and ministry of John the Baptist. But before we get to him, we still have some work to do. We didn't quite get through the entirety of the last section. If you were here last week, it was just a powerful weekend. We looked at the story of Nicodemus and his encounter with Jesus. He came to Jesus by night, and they had this incredible conversation in which Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And, and we worked our way through that text and conversation and saw people get saved all weekend here. It was a glorious thing. 
But we still have a little more work to do because we weren't able to finish up. So <clears throat> begin reading with me there in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. OK, stop there, because there's just so much there for us to unpack. Last week, we left off with Verse 16, which is, is just a tremendous verse, perhaps the most well-known verse in all the Bible. And if John 3.16 is the most memorized and well-known and beloved scripture in all the Bible, then John 3.17 might just be the most overlooked and neglected verse in the entire Bible. It begins with the word for, which ties us back to the previous statement. So what has John just been talking about? The incredible love of God for the world. So he's been talking about how God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. And then he goes on in verse 17, and it's a continuation of that theme. And the reason this verse is so important is because it gets at the very heart of why Jesus came into this world. Now, I'm always looking for those, those scriptures and those texts that give us insight into the purpose or the mission of Jesus. Why did Jesus leave heaven and come to this earth? And there are a smattering of verses that populate the New Testament that give us insights or answers to that question. For instance, Luke chapter 19, verse 10 tells us that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That's one of the reasons why Jesus came. And, and it should be reflected in the heart of his people. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. John 6.38 furthermore tells us that Jesus came to do the will of the Father. He came to this earth to fulfill, to carry out the will of the Father. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, tells us that Jesus didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So each one of these verses, it helps fill in the picture, if you will, of Jesus' mission and his purpose. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to do the will of the Father. And he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And here in John 3.17, we learn even more about Jesus' purpose in coming to the earth when we're told that he didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This was Jesus' mission. And we see this mission play out in a variety of ways and in a variety of contexts throughout the Gospels. For instance, we see it in the way Jesus chose to handle the situation with the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. We'll come to that story several weeks from now when we get to John chapter 8. But perhaps you recall how they had caught this woman mid-act in the act of committing adultery. Now, in that culture and at that time that was a crime that was punishable by death and so they drug her before Jesus and they cast her at his feet and they stood there with stones in their hands ready and willing to condemn her but they wanted first to see what Jesus had to say would he condemn this woman who was very clearly guilty and worthy of this punishment and say what do you say and you remember the story, Jesus didn't say anything at first, but he knelt to the ground and he began to write 
with his finger in the dust. And there's been so much speculation about what Jesus wrote. But then he stood up and he said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Slowly but surely, you heard the thud of rocks as they fell from men's hands. And the crowd began to thin until finally the only two people left were Jesus and this woman. And I picture him taking her head as it's buried, no doubt, in her hands with tears and and filling her eyes. And he takes her head in his, his hands and he looks deeply into her eyes and he says, woman, where are your accusers? And for the first time, she looks around and she doesn't see anyone else except Jesus. And she says, they're, they're gone. And then Jesus says this, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And of course, the great irony of that story is that Jesus was the only one standing there that day who could have thrown a stone. He was the only one without sin. And he could have condemned her. And he would have been justified in doing so. But instead, he chose to show mercy and grace. And in doing that, he left a powerful example for his followers to follow in. You see, in my experience in talking with people and in doing life with people, I've found that most of the people walking around, they already feel condemned already. And what they don't need is someone piling on. What they need is someone to tell them that there's hope and that there's grace and that there's mercy and that there's forgiveness if they'll turn to Jesus. You see, it's not my job, it's not our job to stand as both judge and jury and pronounce condemnation on people. That's above our pay grade. But I can hear the questions rumbling around and tumbling around in many of your hearts and brains. You're sitting there, and some of you are thinking, but if, if we do that, that sounds a little bit like sloppy agape, if you know what I mean. What about truth? What about righteousness? What about consequences? Ah, those things do matter. And John goes on to address them in the very next verse. Read with me verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Someone say, praise the Lord. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Why? Because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Here we see that there is a judge. He's the only one who has the right and the authority to get condemned. His name is God. And he sits as judge over all the earth. And one day, he will render the final verdict in every person's life. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 puts it like this. Let's go ahead and read this verse together out loud. It's in your notes. It is appointed unto men once to die and then to face judgment. There is an appointment that you will not be late for. Every single one of us in here has a date with destiny. And as a matter of fact, I was reminded of that earlier today. I was down by the border and I was doing a funeral for someone, something that I do a lot as a pastor. And, and, and so it's one of those times when everyone is confronted with the reality of their own mortality. It's appointed unto men once to die. And then what? To face the judgment. Even if you live to be 100, the Bible compares the lifespan of humans to things like 
vapor or a smoke or, or the grass of the field or perhaps to a flower. But in, in all these pictures, the point is our lives are temporary and brief. And there is coming a day when each of us will stand before God. And when we do, he's going to render his verdict on our lives. And so the question, what will that verdict be based on? Well, let me tell you first what it won't be based on. He won't pronounce judgment on you either one way or the other based on how many Bible verses you've memorized or how often you've attended church or, or, or how good your life was. And on the flip side of that, it doesn't mention anything in this verse about sending people to hell or condemning them because they've committed too many sins or because they've committed too many horrible things. When it comes to it, God's decision will be based on one thing and one thing alone, whether or not you've accepted Jesus into your heart as Lord and Savior. See, oftentimes people tell me about all the questions that they have for God. Oh, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him about this, and I'm gonna, I want to find out why he did that or why he allowed this or that. And here we read about the one question that God is going to ask of every one of us. And you know what that question is? What did you do with my son? You see, it's not a sin issue. It's a son issue. You could be the worst sinner of all time. But if you'll turn from your sin and repent of it and ask Jesus to forgive you, he'll let you into his family. He'll forgive you of your sin, and he'll give you the future of heaven. Listen, the only sin that God will ever send anyone to hell for. And yes, I believe that hell is a real place. It wasn't created for man. It was created for the devil and his angels. But the only way you'll ever get to hell is by going your whole life and refusing to accept Jesus' offer of forgiveness. It's as if God were saying to us, the only way you'll get to hell is you, if you walk over my son's dead body to get there. Because that's what Jesus went through to save you. Now, that raises another question. If getting into heaven really is as simple as that, as just receiving and accepting Jesus into our hearts, then why would anybody reject him? And John goes on to answer that question for us in the next section. He says in verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it might be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So here we see the real reason people don't come to Jesus. And John turns to his favorite metaphors of light and darkness to help explain why people choose to reject Jesus. And, and oftentimes when I'm having conversations with people and it comes to things of a spiritual nature, and I'll even ask them from time to time, now, now why aren't you a believer? And, and oftentimes they'll cite things like philosophical or technical or scientific reasons. And here John would contend that those things are just in reality, smoke screens for the real reason, which according to him has nothing to do with evidence or science or reason. And instead, it has everything to do with the fact that people love their sin and they don't want to turn away from it. He says here that God is light. 
But men love the darkness. That's the verdict. And it's the real reason they don't turn to the light, because they know that stepping into the light means exposing themselves. It means making changes in their life, and they're not ready or willing to do that. I'm, I'm always shocked when I talk to people whose lives have been utterly wrecked by sin. Their marriage is in shambles. Their relationship with their kids has been ruined, and their, even their, their career has been destroyed, all because of their sin, and yet they're still unwilling to let it go. What is that? It's what John's talking about here. The real reason people don't come to Jesus is because they love and prefer the darkness. Now, on the flip side of that, the, the sign, the one sign that you truly are a child of God is this. It's that you've stepped out of the dark and into the light. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It just means that you've exposed yourself to the light of God's love. John said it like this. This is 1 John 1.7. Let's go ahead and read this verse together out loud as well. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. That is a beautiful, wonderful, glorious truth. Walking in the light. I have nothing to hide. Jesus, you already see the good, the bad, and the ugly. I am exposed before you, and I am allowing you to take the blood of Jesus and to apply it to the places of my heart that need a fresh touch of your forgiveness, and we're able to walk in that freedom and wholeness. This is victorious Christian living, and it's what John describes in this section. Now, in verse 22, we're going to take a hard right turn, and we're going to once again return now to the ministry of John the Baptist. So let's get, go ahead and begin reading there. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John was also baptizing at Aenean near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. And to this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Now, here we have this snapshot, really the final snapshot of John's ministry prior to his imprisonment. And, and what we need to remember is that up until this point, John has enjoyed great success in the ministry. He was the biggest show in town. Even King Herod was downloading his podcasts. Everyone from all the surrounding region was coming to John to hear him preach and to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. But now, there's change in the air. For the first time, the crowds were starting to thin as more and more people began to follow Jesus and leave John. 
You see, Jesus' congregation or church, if you will, was growing even as John's was shrinking. And so John's senior staff saw what was happening and they brought it to his attention. They, they saw it as a problem. They wanted to know what John had to say. They thought, you know, Jesus is the competition. And so what are we going to do to keep up with him? And, and by the way, let me just mention at this moment that, that I really feel like this represented a major test for the ministry of John the Baptist. How would he respond to his own diminishing fame as his star begins to fade? Would he gather his team and try to come up with a new marketing strategy? Clearly, God's blessing Jesus' ministry. What do they have that we don't? I mean, are they giving away donuts? What is it about that ministry that we can pick up on and borrow or steal? That would have been the response of a lot of people. I mean, once someone has tasted fame as John had and tasted the spotlight, it can be a hard thing to to back away or to walk away from. John was different in just about every category. And this one as well, instead of allowing his jealousy to set in, or instead of choosing to see Jesus as competition, or instead of being threatened by his success, John rejoiced in the fact that Jesus' ministry was flourishing, even though it came at the expense of his own ministry success. In fact, he actually saw his own shrinking audience as evidence of the fact that he had done his job effectively. You see, we're often, let me just point the finger at myself, we're often guilty of being threatened by other people's success but not John. He saw a win for Jesus as a win for himself. And he mentioned several things, beginning in verse 27. The first thing he tells us is that everything we have comes from God. Here was his response. A person can only receive what is given to them from heaven. What a a wise observation this is. Whatever you have, whether it be in terms of gifts or talents, or abilities, or resources. It's all a gift from God. Now, you may contend with me on that point and say, wait a minute. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. I built a thriving business, and and, and I did it all on my own. I built it from the ground up. But wait a minute. Who gave you your drive, your personality, your determination? Who put the right people in front of you at just the right time? Who opened those doors? You see what I mean? Ultimately, everything that's good in your life is a gift from God. And John understood this. And so he could hold everything with an open hand because he recognized that it would, had come from God. And so it was God's responsibility to steward. And it's this quality of humility that ultimately captures and in some ways defines the entirety of John's life and ministry. It's what makes him worthy of not only our study, but our emulation as well. One preacher I was listening to put it like this, and I quote, think of it, the greatest man who had ever lived in the history of the world, the most privileged prophet, the most popular preacher in centuries, drawing massive crowds, the most powerful messenger, bringing the greatest message the world had ever heard. And the lesson he teaches us is how important it is 
that he fade away and Christ become everything. Now that message, it runs contrary, not just to the grain of our own human soul, but to everything our culture values and esteems. I mean, our society is celebrity-focused and fame-obsessed. Everyone, just about everyone, is looking for their 15 minutes of fame. And, and let's just be honest, fame can be an addictive drug, can't it? Once you've tasted it, it's easy to get drunk on it. I like the way one old country preacher put it. He said, compliments are like perfume. It's okay to sniff them, but don't you dare swallow them. <laughs> That's good. And pastors like John aren't immune to the hunger for status and fame either. I mean, there have been a slew of news stories that I think have come out recently that, that shine a light on the rise of what they're calling the celebrity pastor. Have you guys seen this? These pastors, in addition to working hard on their messages, they also work hard on cultivating their image and building their brand. They're known as much for their outfits that they wear on the weekends as they are for the messages that they preach. There's even a, a popular Instagram page called Preachers and Sneakers, and it shows pictures of these preachers next to the, the price tags of the designer clothes and shoes that they happen to be wearing. And, and by the way, for the record, I don't have a problem with popular preachers, or I don't even care what kind of shoes someone wears when they preach. All I'm doing here is trying to highlight how pervasive the human desire to be seen and celebrated is. It affects and impacts everybody, including preachers. Even Paul the Apostle, that great preacher, he was another guy who had to combat people who were trying to turn him and, and other church leaders at the time into celebrities. He wrote about it in his letter to the church at Corinth. He says, one of you says, well, I follow Paul. And another, I follow Apollos. And another, I follow Cephas or Peter. And still another, well, I follow Christ. And so you can see how people were lining up behind their favorite preachers and they were forming these teams and building these camps. And, and a few chapters later, Paul picks up on that theme again and he says this. And let's go ahead and just read this together out loud as well. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God makes things grow. So whether it's Paul or John or Peter or Apollos, they're all just cogs in the wheel, but Jesus is the hub. He's the thing that makes the whole thing run. He's the only one who makes things grow. And, and so the point that's being elaborated on here is this idea that pride, it was a danger. It was a temptation for John. It's a temptation for us, and it's a cancer to the human soul. It's what got Lucifer kicked out of heaven. To some degree, it's what got Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. And today, it's what causes the downfall of so many successful ministries and ministers. Listen, Jesus needs to be the only one we celebrate. Say amen. He's the only one we exalt. He's the only one we worship. He's the centerpiece. He's the focal point. He's the one we gather around. And John, he lived that out. He demonstrates that for us. 
Instead of using his platform to build a following, he used it to point people to Jesus. And this is why I believe Jesus would go on to call John the greatest of all time. John was the goat because he got out of the way. One more illustration on this point, and then we'll move on, because I was thinking about something. I was, I was thinking about how, you remember on Palm Sunday, Jesus, he rode in on the triumphal entry, what we call the triumphal entry, and he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And I don't know why, but for some reason, I got to thinking about that donkey and what might have been going through his head as he saw people waving palm branches in front of him and laying down their coats for him to walk upon. Perhaps, I don't know what goes on in the, the heart and the mind of a donkey, but perhaps he started to think, wow, I'm pretty great. I mean, these people, they're welcoming me. They're all here for me. They're throwing a parade for me. I am the greatest donkey of all time. How foolish and how silly that would be for that donkey to have those thoughts. After all, he was just the vehicle that Jesus chose to use to get somewhere to accomplish his plan, his purpose, and his will. Well, guess what? We're the donkey. <laughs> so if God does anything good in this place or through your life, just remember that Jesus is the one they should be looking at. He's the one they should be excited about. It's all about Jesus. Can you just repeat that back to me to remind one another that it's all about Jesus? Say, it's all about Jesus. Amen. And John uses two different pictures to describe how he saw his role. He describes himself as a herald and as a friend of the bridegroom. The first thing he says is, you, you yourselves know, I didn't say I was the Messiah, but I'm the, the one who is the messenger sent ahead. And saying that, John was once again comparing himself to an ancient herald. We, we talked about this earlier in John chapter 1, where he said, I'm a voice. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. And in saying that, we talked about this, how that was the job of a herald to go before the king and to prepare that realm of the kingdom for the arrival of the coming king. Now, now once the king has arrived, the job of the herald is essentially done. And how foolish would it be for that herald to be like, hey, hey. The king is coming, and he's here. The king, he's here, but pay attention to me. You know, no, no, no. Once the king has gone, come, the job is done. All that would do is steal attention away from the king. And John's point was that Jesus had arrived, and so his joy was full. The other picture that John uses here is, is that of the friend of the groom. Today, in our modern culture, we would call that the best man. Now, in the ancient world, the best man had a, a fairly significant role in the wedding. He was responsible for a lot of the details of planning the wedding, including bringing the bride to the groom. But again, how silly would it be for, for a bride to be walking down the aisle towards her groom for the best man to come and stand in the place of the best man and welcome the bride? No, no, no. The groom's job is to bring her or I'm sorry, the best man's job is to bring the bride to the groom. In my studies, I came across an article that offered advice to anyone who's getting ready to be the best man at a wedding. And, and the article really zeroed in on how you should approach your most important duty as a best man, which, of course, has to do with the speech. 
In addition to the obvious suggestions like be prepared, be appropriate, quality over quantity, and by all means, don't mention the X, there was also this important bit of advice, and I quote, don't steal the spotlight. You have a big job to do on the wedding day, and a lot of people will be watching you. But that doesn't mean the day is about you. Never try to steal the spotlight from the wedding couple by exaggerating or talking about yourself. Don't use your speech to break any news like a guest being pregnant. Nobody wants to watch a Kanye West-style spotlight-stealing moment. <laughs> that's great advice, not just for any would-be best men, but that's great advice for life and ministry in general. Don't steal the spotlight. Instead, take the spotlight and point it on Jesus. As Jesus himself said, conduct your affairs and live your life and do your good works in such a way that when men see you and your good deeds, that they give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Next point, John in verse 30 really summarizes who he is and what he's about when he says this, he must become greater, I must become less. He is greater than I. If you were to take John's entire life and, and distill it into a single sentence, this would most certainly be it. He must decrease, I must decrease. By the way, it's worth pointing out that these are the very last recorded words of John prior to his arrest and imprisonment. Last words, of course, are always important. They tend to, to stick with us. They, they, they tend to leave and make a mark. And John's last words indeed do just that. He must increase. I must decrease. And John didn't just say that, but he lived it out. Because from this point on, John slowly but surely fades into the background as Jesus takes center stage. Again, my weird mind, I was thinking about something. Uh, did you ever play with shrinky dinks as a kid? Remember what shrinky dinks were? They were like these things, these plastic things, and you'd paint them or you'd color them in, and you'd heat up the oven, and you'd take your shrinky dinks, and you'd take this big thing, and you'd put it in the oven, and within a couple of minute, minutes, as the heat turned up, that huge thing would shrink down until it was about a fifth its original size. Well, John's whole life was like that. The further he went in life, the smaller he got. And, and that should be not only John's life, that should be our goal as well. The further we go, the more people should see Jesus in us, the less they should interact with and interface with Daniel, because the Lord knows that's not what people need. What they need is the Jesus who lives within me. And what the world needs is the Jesus who lives within you. And I don't want to give people what I have to give. I want to give them what God has placed in me. And by his spirit, he lives in me. So Lord, my prayer tonight, and for many of us, I believe our prayer tonight is, might I decrease so that you can increase. And the further I go and the longer I live, Jesus, might there be more and more and more of you. Amen. Now, let's finish up with verses 31 through 36. I just have really one comment to make on these. These are John's editorial comments on this whole section. He says, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He's talking here about Jesus. 
He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever accepted it has certified that God is truthful, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. Think about that. He speaks the word of God. He has the spirit resting upon him without limit. When he speaks on things of a heavenly or spiritual nature, he speaks with authority because he comes down from heaven. Verse 35, the father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. So whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Let's zero in on verse 36, because it presents us with a real choice. We can either choose to believe in the son or reject him. If you've ever played a board game or chess, you know that you do a move. I do a move. You do a move. I do a move. Back and forth we go. God has moved his peace. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross in your place. He has extended an offer of salvation and forgiveness and freedom and healing and hope. But the ball is in our court, as it were. It's our move. And the question is, what will you do? What will you do? How will you respond? Let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time and these moments that we've had to share together this evening. And thank you for your word. So rich. Thank you for the life and the ministry and the example of John the Baptist, the anti-celebrity pastor, this guy who was constantly moving away from the spotlight and stepping into the shadows in order that he might make much of Jesus, Lord. And I want to make much of you tonight. And we're, we're now getting to, to move into a time of communion. And we have an open communion here, which means you don't have to take a class or be a quote unquote member to participate in communion with us. The only prerequisite or the only thing that we ask is that you be a believer. We practice a believer's communion. And so if you're here to consider the claims of Christ, we would just respectfully ask that when the, the cup and the bread are passed out, that you would just forgo taking of those elements because we believe this is very sacred. But maybe you're here tonight and you're ready ready to respond, ready to receive the gift of eternal life through Jesus. God loves you so much. His love for you is boundless. His love for you is endless. His love for you is deeper than the oceans. It's higher than the heavens. His love for you is longer than eternity. His love for you is richer and fuller and greater and sweeter and more wonderful than anything you've ever experienced. But you've got to taste and see that the Lord is good. You can't take my word for it. You have to step into it. You have to personally.
personalize it. You have to invite Jesus into your heart and receive his offer of forgiveness and be changed from the inside out. And that's what Jesus is giving you the opportunity to do right now. He stands at the door of your heart and he knocks. And if it's the desire of your heart to receive and to respond to that invitation, then let me just lead you in a simple childlike prayer. And you can repeat this prayer after me. And at the end of it, you will be welcomed into God's family. You will be ushered into his very presence. You will be forgiven of all your sins and washed whiter than snow. And I'll just invite those of us who know and love the Lord to repeat this prayer together out loud as a way of reaffirming our love for Jesus. Just say out loud with me. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me, for freeing me, for taking my place, for forgiving me, for wanting me, for healing me. I receive your forgiveness. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. Equip me and empower me to live for you, to walk with you, to love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.